Love it. I love the opportunity to uh, disciple the next generation of followers of Christ, both to partner with the parents there of, of, of middle school and high school students. I love the tenacity for which they pursue things. It's a lot of fun, just the questions that they have to, to live life with them. I love it. And as I said, I've been in that role for about the past year. And, and Columbia has had a special place in my heart simply because one of the first things I did when I, when I found out I was going to become the Nolensville student director there, one of the first things I did was our Columbia mission trip. So uh, uh, almost a year on the dot, we loaded up a couple vans full of high school students, came, come to Columbia, and, and they took a few days out of their summer, and they said this. They said, I could be spending my time at work or playing sports, playing video games, sitting on the couch, sitting by the pool. And no, no, no. I'm going to use that time, and I'm going to see what is God doing here in Columbia. So that's what we did. I, we got to partner with those high school students. We, we, got to, uh, we were at Riverside Elementary. We were cleaning up the hallways. We were helping out teachers, helping getting ready for the next year. Or, or we were um, going around the surrounding neighborhood there. We were prayer walking. We were handing out little uh, handouts, just trying to get them connected, get them involved, say, hey, God is on the move here at Rolling Hills Columbia. Uh, we want you to be involved. And, and, and then we, had, we ended it with a block party. Like we just we brought out the grill, brought out a bunch of games, just, and just connected with the neighbors there. And some of you that m- might be in this room, that that was the first connection there. And it was so cool to, to be there with these high school students, to see them grow up and say, I'm going to invest in God's kingdom here. And that's what we're going to be talking about tonight or uh, this morning is what does it mean to invest in God's kingdom? What does it mean to be the hands and feet of Jesus? If you've been coming for the past few weeks, you know that we're in the middle of master class. So we're walking through the book of Mark and we are currently this morning going to be in Mark 12. If you want to go ahead and turn there. Walking through the book of Mark and the story of Jesus and how he shows us a better way to live. And not only does he show us a better way to live, but then he also invites us. He says, come be a part of that. Come be a part of the kingdom that I'm building here. And so when we talk about investing in the kingdom, what does it mean to be a part of it? What does it mean to invest in the kingdom that God is bringing? In the book of Mark, there are two words that I want us to to consider of significance. One of them is immediately. If you've been following along in our, our daily step or reading plan, um, throughout the book of Mark, you may have noticed that immediately it's used 41 times in the book of Mark. It's like this, from one thing to another, we're moving quickly. You might have whiplash because it's like bam, 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 all these things are happening, right, immediately. But then when you get into the second half of the book of Mark, everything slows down. Everything really, you start to feel the, the weight. So everything is not so immediate. Last week in, in Mark 11, Pastor Jason, he talked about the triumphant entry Jesus comes into Jerusalem, and everything slows down. He comes in as the king, and so this is the moment. The culmination of the cross begins here. This is the beginning of the end of his life, and so we do well to take note of that. We come into Mark 12, right after this triumphant entry, and everything slows down. So immediately is one word that we we keep in mind, but then also, uh, Pastor Jason alluded to this last week, authority. Mark uses that almost as more so than any other book in the New Testament. The, the idea of authority. Jesus speaks with authority. He says, the kingdom of God is near. It is at hand. It is here. And I want us to bring us to Mark chapter 8, 31. Take us, take us back for a second. Chapter 8, verse 31, because it splits the book of Mark in half, and it kind of frames where, where Jesus is going when he speaks of authority. It says this, He then began to teach them that the Son of Man, that being him, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law. He must be killed and and 
after three days, rise again. So he will be exalted after he is rejected. That's the authority in which he speaks in. And so in our minds today, I just want us to, to, to really wrestle with that. How is it that the man who is to be rejected before he's exalted, what authority does he speak of through that? What does that mean for us today? How does Jesus and his authority allow us to invest into what he's building, into something greater? Bow your heads and pray with me real quick. Father God, we thank you for this morning. I pray um, that your Holy Spirit would move, that you would give us ears to hear, that you would bring us clarity as to what is that next step? What does it mean to invest in the kingdom that you are building here in Columbia, God? And that you would give us the boldness to step into that. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, as I said, last week in Mark's, Mark 11, Jesus comes to Jerusalem. He's proclaiming the kingdom. He's performing miracles. He's teaching the ways of God. And up to this point, he's the good guy. He's, he's doing all of these great things. But then in, in Mark eleven twelve through 26, he, he's cleansing the temple courts. He's butting heads with the religious leaders and, and goes from, he's no longer just a prolific teacher or a miracle worker. Now he is the self-proclaimed son of God. And that's a problem. For many that are there. This is his heel turn. He goes from the good guy to the bad guy. Now, something we got to keep in mind. Jesus was a tradition breaker. He was an opinion offender, but he was never a law breaker. That he saw these traditions, he saw these opinions, and he showed a better way, and yet he fulfilled the law in what he was doing. And, and, and towards the end of that, he butts heads with the Pharisees. They begin to question him, as Pastor Jason ended it with last week, that um, at the end of Mark 11, his authority is questioned. They ask, by what authority is Jesus at work? And he commands them, hey, spell it out for yourselves. What does it mean? And they, they respond with a very political answer. They say, I don't know. It's my favorite political answer. I, I don't know. And, of course, Jesus, he says, well, then I'm not going to tell you. See, they, the reality is that the Pharisees knew who he was, but they were too fearful to admit it. And so that, was, that is what brings us into Mark 12, that's what brings us to the parable that he's about to, to give to them. He's about to illustrate his authority through this parable, the parable of the tenants. If you'll pick up with me in verse 1 of chapter 12. It says this, Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He puts a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat. Others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him his last of all, saying, They will respect my sons. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. And Jesus says this, what then will the owner of the vineyard do? Well, he will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were too afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. And so he illustrates this authority in this simple parable, obviously, the, the, the Pharisees and the leaders of the law, they're picking up what he's putting down. They know, hey, he's talking about us. 
right? The vineyard is, is, is the promised land. It is, it is the, the, the people of God. It is the law that God has given. It's all the promises and blessings that he given, right? And, and the owner being God the Father, the tenants being the Pharisees or the elders, political or religious elites, those that have been entrusted to steward God's authority well. And then you have the servants, which are Old Testament prophets throughout the Old Testament, those that were mistreated, those that were faithful to God, but no one listened. And they were persecuted for that. And then, of course, the son being Jesus. In verse 9, he renders a judgment. What do you think should happen? And it's very clear. God will come and he will strip those Pharisees of their authority. And he's going to give the vineyard out to the rest of the world. That is the way that the gospel is to be proclaimed. That's where the kingdom of God comes in. And so you see here your first point on your notes that we need to understand is that Jesus does not share his authority with anyone. He is not interested in negotiating or giving away or lending or having it taken away from him. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth of life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Paul says he was God. He counted equality with God, not a thing to be grasped. That means it was in his very nature of his authority. He did not give it away. It was a part of who he was. And, and, and so Jesus came to separate the wicked tenants from the faithful servants. He says, I come bearing a sword. But he also says, I didn't come to condemn the world, but to save it. Like, I am coming to kick out these tenants, but then I'm also coming to save the faithful, those who are here with me. And so when we say the kingdom of God is near at his hand, there's judgment coming, and yet he is inviting us into the kingdom. And this is good news, friends. But it's also a warning. And there's two points of warning. I think one for us as the church, and then one for the world. And, and one of those questions is simply questions of authority. Because we live in a day and age where authority is always under question. The very idea of authority is going to ruffle some feathers. Like, why do we need authority? Why do we need to submit it to anything? If, if anything at all, people use authority as power to lord it over others and abuse them. So what is the point? Those are the conversations that we engage with. But if we know, a biblical definition is that we're always submitting to something. We're made to worship something. There is some authority that we all believe in. Even when we claim, I don't believe in any authority. That is in itself. You are submitting yourself to that idea. And so uh, the question that we have to say is, whose authority do you operate under? Do you operate your own authority or the government or some social media influencer, whatever it is? Uh, that, that rises and falls on, on a temporary agenda. It rises and falls on some fleeting emotion. It rises and falls off a cultural moment. But Jesus' authority is eternal. We'll come back to that. So that's one question. The other question we have for, for us as the church is faithfulness. And that is, who are we in this parable? Are we faithful? Because I think we like to put ourselves in that, in that position. Like we are going to be the ones that are ushered in as the new tenants to tend, tend the vineyard. right? But, but we have to ask, are we being one of the wicked tenants? Are we wanting to use what God's giving us? to take and take and take and take and take and, and, and use what God's authority for ourselves 
Or are we one of the humble servants who, despite the struggle, despite persecution, despite that, faithfully proclaim the gospel in the vineyard that God's placed you in? Like, where are you now that you can faithfully declare the gospel? Do you hope against hope that God will one day send his son into the vineyard again? Well, as I said, Jesus claims his, his authority is eternal. We're going to skip down to verse 35. We'll come back. We'll come back. You're like, Jacob, we're, we're skipping ahead. You type A in the room. Don't worry. Verse 35, this is what he says. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, Why do the teachers in the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? And the large crowd listened to him with delight. See, Jesus is saying here, his authority is eternal. Like It's before David, and it is after David. It will always be there. It's not rising or falling. It will, Jesus' authority will be there after COVID. It will be there after Roe v. Wade. It will be there after any war in Ukraine. Friends, we are called to be faithful to that, regardless of the circumstances. And, and this is great news. Like Submission to Jesus' authority is great news. Why? Because it's not about us. How many of us have let ourselves down? lied to ourselves more than anyone else, right? Like, that's good news. You don't have to worry about that anymore. Jesus, eternal in nature and all-powerful in authority, he steps into creation. He sets the record straight. He says, I'm cleaning house. I'm going to be very clear about my intentions to do so. Then he invites us to take part in the kingdom-building process. Why is that? Well, you see here on your notes, Jesus is the cornerstone from which all other authority rests. He's the cornerstone. He is the thing rejected becomes the very foundation by which everything else rests. So, so in architecture, right, there's this thing, there's this stone that sits on the corner. It is a cornerstone. It's a clever name. But on the front of it, it has the inscription of when it was built, or when it was laid, when the foundation was laid. And from everything else, is oriented based off this cornerstone. Now, it's not always on the corner. Sometimes you see archways. It's in some prominent location. And so you can see when it was built. And the idea is that regardless of what happens to the building, that cornerstone will still be there on the foundation. It is going to preserve it there. But everything lies around it. And so God makes Jesus this cornerstone of every authority. And before we move any further... I want us to think, the one that was rejected on our behalf, that, that scripture he quotes there is Psalm 118. But let's think about that word rejected. Why does he say that? Like, he was rejected on our behalf. Well, we know it's going to happen to Jesus, but not yet. He's saying, Son of Man will be rejected. But also, look at where he's came from. Recall the lineage of Jesus. Just follow the prophecy. Rejected. Not only does Jesus stand as the one who will be rejected, but he comes from a heritage of a rejected people. Leah, rejected by her husband Jacob. She's blessed with Judah. That's, that's where the Messiah will come through. Moses, rejected by his people as a murderer, but then he goes and leads God's people out of Egypt. David, rejected by his father, is the runt of the family. There's no way he can be a leader, and yet he turns out to be Israel's greatest king. Isaiah 52 and 53 is a prophecy over the Messiah that, that Jesus would fulfill. It's the suffering servant. It says that he will be disfigured beyond human recognition and lifted up in glory, bearing the sins of many. 
but he is to be rejected. And this should serve as good news for us because our God, we're tempted to imagine that he's, he's going to be strong, tall, handsome, like authority, like he's just going to, he's going to rain out. And, 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 and no, he is gentle and lowly. He is to be rejected. He came from a rejected people and he will be rejected by his people. That's what's going to happen on his road to the cross. But as I said, he is, he is the cornerstone. Everything else sits in reference to who he is and what Jesus did on the cross. So for us, that means every institution and government initiative, every company, medical clinic, invention, novel innovation, every church and charity rest on the work of the cross. That's who we are as Christians. That is, that is the cross-filtered glasses that we wear at this time with the coming of God's kingdom. In Revelation, towards the end of this book, when, when the end is here, there's a worship procession, for, procession from every nation, all tribes, peoples. Uh, they're all there. The elders are there. Angels are there. God and the lamb that was slain, Jesus was there. And, and, and one phrase is repeated over and over again that everything else sits in reference to around the throne and God who sits on it. So this is the authority. And Jesus is the cornerstone. Everything else is built around it. But he wants to make his point clear. So join with me in verse 13, because this is help illustrate the point. Later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarii and let me look at it. They brought him the coin and he asked, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. So imagine this, the trap is set. So you have the Pharisees that were keepers of the law. They were typically, they were much more sympathetic to the Jewish people. And then they had the Herodians who were also Jewish keepers of the law, but they were more sympathetic to Roman occupation. So this is kind of an enemy of my enemy is my friend situation. They come together, and, and they say, well, we're going to trap him, right? And, and so he says, bring me a denarii and tell me whose inscription is on it. So imagine Jesus, the Son of Man, God made flesh, is holding a coin. And on these coins typically would be the inscription, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. Picture that. Like, that'd be like tomorrow morning. You're walking through the office, and your coworker he's holding your world's best dad mug, drinking his coffee, and you're like, that's not your mug, that's my mug. Like, I'm the world's best dad, not you, right? But Jesus doesn't do that. If he affirms the temple tax, he says, hey, I'm sympathetic to Rome, it'll be offensive to the Jews, but then if he rejects it, that's treasonous to the Roman government. So he's, he's, forced, to choose, he's forced to choose between his cultural identity and a political conviction. So what does he say? Look down at verse 17. Then Jesus said to them, Give back to Caesar's what is Caesar's, and to God's what is God's. And they were amazed at him. So give to Caesar what is his, his coin, and to God what is God's. So what is God's? Well, that's your lives. You see, if you, if you don't know a biblical definition of what it means to be human, it's to be made in the image of God. In fact, in Genesis 1, 26-27, at the very beginning of time, God said, Let us make mankind in our image. And our likeness, so that he may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, 
over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God he created them. Male and female he created them. That's the imago Dei, that we are all made in the image of God. So what belongs to God? Well, whose image is on you? God's. That's the authority that we live with. See, what Jesus is doing here, he's affirming the Imago Dei. But he's also putting Caesar in his place. Jesus is saying, I am the cornerstone by which all authority rests. I have all authority, and this is what I say to you. But also, Caesar, I'm not worried about that. Pay the tax. I have all the authority. I'm in control. So do we live like we're made in the image of God? Like, are we leveraging all that we have to recognize and affirm the image of God in others? And what actions are we taking to affirm the Imago Dei in others? It's one of the things why I love, one of the reasons why I love our Do Good Local Summer Challenge. Because in our local missions, we have three initiatives. Feed the hungry, restore the homeless, invest in education. And so one of the things we're doing here is invest in education. So we feed the hungry through food drives, restore the homeless, serving with ministries like uh, Bridge Ministry, Shower Up, Crossroads to home, and, and we invest in education. We have, we have school supply drive going on right now, and, but you can also serve through ministries like Path Project, Preston Taylor Ministries. These are all opportunities to be the hands and feet of Jesus. Say, hey, I'm affirming the Imago Dei in you, and I'm also going to live as the image of God. And so we have a biblical mandate to care for the widows and orphans, to clothe the na- naked and visit the sick and those in prison, as a, both as a church but also as individuals. And it's messy, and it's overwhelming, and it takes work, but it's worth it. Church, it's worth it. But what it means to live on mission, it, it's very clear. It's very practical. It's not hypothetical. And, and this leads into to verse 18, what, what Jesus then has to deal with. The Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no children. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses in the account of the burning bush how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Not I was, but I am. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And this is my, you're badly mistaken. Like if there was any clarity whatsoever, he, you are mistaken. No, he says, I am who I am, not who I was. See, Jesus is giving a ridiculous question. It's just a crazy hypothetical. But he doesn't, he doesn't get caught up in that. Jesus doesn't answer in hypotheticals. He doesn't live in a world of what ifs. He stands on what scripture says. He stands on what he knows to be true, not what if. God is the God of what is true, not what if this is true. 1 Timothy 4, 7, Paul says this, Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Church, I think that's a word that we need to hear this morning. Because we are so tempted to get caught up. Next week, uh, we're going through Mark 13. It's right after Mark 12. 
believe it or not. And, and Mark 13 is a very difficult passage. You can read it, not right now, but you can read it on your own time. And, and, and guess what? It's sign of the end times, but, but we don't have to have that all worked out right now. We don't have to drive ourselves crazy trying to figure out God. In fact, you see it here on your notes. When we submit ourselves to Jesus' authorities, authority, we don't have to have all the answers. You see, Jesus has it figured out. It's been decided. He wins. But if we're being honest, I have to ask, um, when was not knowing all the possible answers ever stopped us from sharing our opinions before? Right? Like, how often we get caught up in, I don't know, should I really share my testimony with this coworker? Or should I really have that conversation with my son about raising him up in the fear of the Lord? I, I don't know. Should I really have that intimate conversation with my wife about what God is teaching me or what he's convicting me of? Like, when has that ever stopped us from sharing our opinions before? I know that's not a problem because I see social media. It is, a, it is a booming business. Everybody's sharing opinions everywhere. Right? But if we're so willing to do that, if we're so willing to share our half-baked opinions on Facebook, then how much more should we share our story with others? Like, how much more should we lead in teaching others, raising up our children, reaching our neighborhood, creating a gospel-centered community where you're at? And say, hey, I, I don't have all the answers, but I, I submit myself to the authority of Jesus, and he does. He has all the answers, and, and, and I don't have to have it all figured out. But, but if you're a Christian, you know what is true. It's been revealed in his word. So what is it? What is it that you know to be true? Well, Jesus says it here in verse 28. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. He asked them, of all the the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You're right in saying that God is the one and there is no no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. So, so what Jesus is saying here, what he says, hear this, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's the Shema. So this is something that they would rehearse themselves, the people of God, before they even looked at the law, before they even considered the law, they would rehearse this. This is what we are to do. Love the Lord your God. And, and then to love your neighbor as yourself. What Jesus is saying here is nothing profound. Like if you were looking for some new uh, formula, something that's going to break the code on this life. Like, No, what he is saying is it's very simple. It's the same message that God's been giving his people since he delivered them out of slavery. And so there's going to be people around us, people either within the church or out in the world that are going to have itching ears that want to devote themselves to senseless what-ifs. And Jesus is saying, hey, remember what you know to be true. And not only that, believe in it so much that it affects your relationship with God and it affects your relationship with others. Friends, this is nothing new. It's not a secret. When we love God, we begin to love others. 
And conversely, we realize how far we drifted from God when we see the brokenness in our relationship with others. That should be uh, a, a warning sign. When we snap at our roommates, when we speak poorly about others behind, our, behind their backs, when we find ourselves pouring back into this toxic relationship, that should be a sign that, hey, something with me and God isn't right. I've got to get away. I've got to recenter myself. But then also, it's the importance of community. We need others to turn our eyes to Jesus when we drifted away or we get lost. We need others to hold us accountable when we screw up. We need others to remind us of God's grace again and again and again. Jenny Allen, she says this in her new book, Find Your People. She says, never do anything alone. Why? Because even God exists in community within himself. So if God exists in perfect community with himself, why shouldn't we? And and she says this, if you want to be effective, then ask for help. That makes other people feel needed, draws them together in a shared purpose. What's more, by taking this simple but vulnerable step, we start to build the community we are longing for. See, you're looking for something. You're looking for that community. We need that Christ-centered community. And so be that Christ-centered community. Take that next step. Open up your home, hospitality. Host a community group. I don't know what it is, but be that community that you want to see, that you long for, that you know is good for you, that points you back to Jesus. When you build that Christ-centered community, then that's how we make Jesus known. As you see here on your notes, Jesus exercises his authority when we invest in his kingdom. Look here in verse 38. As he taught, Jesus said, Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished more severely. So these are people who take. They just take, they take. But then we come here to the widow's offering. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in very, two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They gave out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty, putting in everything, all she had to live on. So, so the widow gives proportionally more than, than these leaders. And in fact, the proud, they will, they will continue to take out of the things they have. And it's going to have consequences on those that have not. And yet you have a widow, the humble, who give out of their poverty. And, and so as we wrap up this morning, I, just, I need us to hear this, is that Jesus is not interested in a dollar amount. And when we talk about giving, Jesus is not impressed with how many churches we plant or how many mission trips we send. I mean, these are good things, yes. But if we really submit ourselves to the authority of Jesus, then we believe that he has all authority to bring the kingdom here, now, however he wants. And we pray for that as well. Yet the, the, the deeper message here is that he invites us to take part of it. And, and not only that, he wants us to. He says, hey, give sacrificially. What does that mean? That means to give till it hurts. Give of your time. Give of your treasures. Give of your abilities. Like those are the things that we give. Why is that? Well, two reasons. One, we get skin in the game. You care a lot more when you're invested in what's happening here. I, I care a lot more about what's happening on the mission field when I'm sending someone there. When I'm paying for them to be there, I want updates. I want to know what God's on the move. I want to know what he's doing. See, when you give something of you, 
you care a lot more. That's intentional. And, and, and two is this, and this is specifically with financial giving. That dollar, when you give it up, whatever it is, when you give faithfully, when you give generously, when you give sacrificially, literally you pray over that, it becomes like a quantified prayer because that dollar sign represents a priority, something that you prioritize. And when you take that dollar sign and you give it up to the Lord and you say, you just use it however you, however you will, God. That's your prayer. Right there, it's, it's, it's a quantified prayer, and, and, and it will change your life. This isn't a prosperity gospel. I'm not saying you put 10 bucks in, you'll get 100 bucks out. I'm not saying that at all, but it will change your life. Because the reality is, listen, the Lord has given us everything that we've already need to live life abundantly, live life in the fullness of joy in Christ Jesus. That is what we need, and we have that. But giving of our time, our talent, our treasures, allows us to put those things in their proper place. To say, hey, this is, I'm going to put this under Jesus' authority where he places it. He is the cornerstone. And, and, and allows us to take part in the kingdom that God is building right here. It's an opportunity. So we can never give more than Jesus gave. But through Jesus, we get to build on the foundation that he laid down for us. And so what does that, what does that look like for you? And have you taken that first step? Have you said, I want to take, I, I, I want a relationship with Christ. I want to take that first step into the kingdom. I want to know what that looks like in my neighborhood. I want to know what that looks like in my household. Have you taken that first step? Or, or are you submitting to some other authority? Um, are, you, are you giving until it hurts? Are you giving financially? Or are, you, are you serving? And, and, and finally, how, how are you living today missionally that builds the kingdom and invests in the lives of others? Like those tomorrow, like those who aren't in the room here now, what are you doing to invest when they come through those doors two weeks from now, two months from now, two years from now? They could say, well, there was something that was being built here, and I want to take part in that. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this time that we get to spend together. Uh, praising your name, worshiping you, to recognize um, you have all authority and you are bringing your kingdom here and now. And God, we just ask that you would move in our lives over the next week, that you would allow us to be your hands and feet, whatever that looks like in our households, um, in our workplaces all the different places that we frequent, God, may we be a light in the midst of the darkness. We thank you for the opportunity to build on what you're doing here, God, and we pray that you would bless us, that we may glorify you in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen.